Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Holbrook, 2010, Part 2. The fact that at 9am on Wednesday the 2nd of June 2010, Andrew Cairns was waiting at the door of his doctor's surgery when his GP arrived was a positive sign. With the exception of a couple of unanswered calls and one or two unnoticed strolls past the cottage, he'd abided by the restrictions the police had set him on contacting the estranged mother of his son, Rachel Slack. Little Auden was only 23 months old, and his feelings at being separated from him had been made worse by the news that Rachel had not only rekindled a relationship with her teenage sweetheart Rob Barlow, but the pair were also expecting a baby. Since returning to the UK, Andrew had been in and out of residential psychiatric care, police custody, as well as in and out of favour with the housing charity that was both his landlord and a secondary support provider behind the community mental health team. Andrew knew he'd caused distress and worry to Rachel. He'd been horrible to her at times, almost violent more than once, but it was only because he loved her and he wanted her, Auden and himself, to be a family together. If that could happen, everything'd be fine. He'd be fine. He knew he could make Rachel happy, but she neither wanted him nor for him to have any relationship with his son. That, at least, was how Andrew saw it. That his reality bore no relation to the truth of the world in which he actually found himself was almost irrelevant. Rachel had tried all she could to support him through his struggles with his mental health, bent over backwards to maintain a relationship between Andrew and little Auden. Both these things she'd done at the expense of her own happiness and peace of mind. Andrew saw none of this, though. All he saw was a woman he loved spurring his attentions and his son slipping further and further away from him. His disassociation from the truth would, regardless of fact, have a real-world impact, more shocking than anything anyone dared to imagine. Once he sat down in his GP's office, the first thing Dr Michael Small noticed was that Andrew was in a certain amount of distress. He complained about the side effects of his medication, the lack of support he was receiving from the community mental health team, and the lengths he perceived Rachel was going to in order to bar him from access to his son, Auden. Before all of this, though, Before Andrew trotted out his usual script of unsubstantiated gripes, he said something to Dr Small that took him aback. This, stated Andrew, is going to be one of the most important days of your career. Immediately, Dr Small challenged Andrew. That sounds like a threat to me, he replied. What do you mean? 
Andrew immediately backpedalled. It wasn't meant to be a threat. His medication, lack of support, not seeing Auden. Dr Small made a referral for Andrew to start a course of CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, arranging for him to return the following week to speak to another doctor in the practice. Consultation over. As he left, Andrew turned to Dr Small and played down the threat he'd made about Rachel and how significant the day would be. It was his medication, his lack of support, him not seeing Orton. Dr Small replayed the line in his head as the door swung shut and Andrew walked down the corridor and out of the practice. This is going to be one of the most important days of your career. Dr Small made a note to speak to Andrew's psychiatrist. minutes before Andrew had his conversation with Dr Small, Robert Barlow, Rachel's partner, closed the front door of the cottage behind himself. Turning the key anti-clockwise to secure the mortise lock, he slipped the small bunch back through the letterbox. Rachel, Auden and himself had enjoyed the previous bank holiday weekend together, and before leaving he'd kissed Rachel goodbye. There'd been thankfully no sign of Andrew over the last couple of days, but as Robert headed off to work, knowing that the woman he loved, the woman who was carrying his baby, was safe and secure, provided a certain amount of assurance. It was an assurance, however, that was short-lived, as, just a few hours later, he received a phone call from a neighbour. There'd been an incident at the cottage, and could he get back quickly? Robert's assumption was that Andrew had turned up and was, yet again, making a scene. But on drawing close to the cottage, just off the main road in Holbrook, he couldn't fail to notice police and ambulances blocking his way. Getting out of the car, Robert's own words tell what happened next, better than I'm able. I walked up to the cottage and looked through the kitchen door, but I couldn't see anything, so I went to the corner of the window around the front of the cottage. That's when I saw Rachel. Doubled over and kneeling, she was by a small sofa in the lounge, Auden close beside her. Both had received deep and deliberate stab wounds to their bodies. In Rachel's case, the injuries were fatal. Auden, at just 23 months old, was still alive though, if only just. A helicopter airlifted him to Derby Royal Infirmary and straight to the major trauma team in the emergency department. Unfortunately, despite the flight taking just minutes and the skilled determination of the onboard medical team, he was pronounced dead on arrival. A third individual was discovered at the scene. He was lay slumped over the bloodied body of Rachel, draped across her as though to smother. It was that of Andrew. 18 self-inflicted knife wounds proving fatal. Folded into his lap was the murder weapon, a long-bladed kitchen knife. Tucked into his pockets were the keys to the locked front and back doors, as well as Rachel's mobile phone. Trapped, 
without a means to summon help, mother and son were at the mercy of an angry and vengeful man. The words he'd uttered so menacingly in the park made real. I've given up everything for you. You've no idea what I'm capable of. I'll kill you and take him with me. At the post-mortem, pathologist Guy Rutter counted a total of 32 stab wounds across Rachel's neck and chest, with the two deepest splintering through her sternum and upper ribcage, lacerating her heart. On the tiny body of 20-month-year-old Auden, an almost incomprehensible 16 injuries were identified, including four stab wounds to his back and five to his chest. Dr. Rutter was also able to confirm that Rachel was between 14 and 15 weeks pregnant. By mid-afternoon, the clouds that had threatened to rain earlier in the day had cleared, and Jean Slack, Rachel's mother, was sat in the lounge at her home in Ripley, just over five miles northeast of Holbrook. Hearing the knock on the door, she rose to her feet and answered it expecting Rachel to have changed her mind about cancelling the shopping trip. Instead, opening the door, she was met by two uniformed police officers. I remember saying, what's this then? Has Andrew been playing up again? They came in and I remember him sitting down. They said, I'm afraid there's been an incident over in Holbrook. Rachel has died and so has Auden. As the details surrounding the murder of Rachel and Auden began to filter out to the family, across the community and into the media, what was initially horror and grief of lives lost was replaced by anger and accusations as to who knew of the risks Andrew posed to Auden and Rachel, and why more wasn't done to protect them. As is normal in cases where any deaths or serious injuries occur following contact with the police, Derbyshire Constabulary referred themselves to the body responsible for monitoring police conduct, which at the time was the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the IPCC. Several reports later, the first being criticised for its lack of rigour and detail, particularly given the huge amounts of assessment and evidence collection that was undertaken by Derbyshire Constabulary themselves, the final analysis outlined a force which, while having notionally learnt the lessons from the murder of Tanya Moore five years previously, as covered in the last episode, had not made any operational changes necessary to make an impact. Training for officers around coercive and controlling behaviour, stalking and harassment were, while available, delivered in an ad hoc manner. Risk assessments were paper-based, and the system of oversight hugely backlogged. In the case of Rachel and Auden, the only documentation and statements taken in the days before their deaths were written in individual officers' pocketbooks. Shockingly, though an officer did telephone Rachel to tell her that Andrew had been released into the community just days before her and her son's killing, they didn't communicate to her that they believed him to be a risk to her and Auden's safety or make any effort to assess or upgrade the security around her. On publication of the findings, Rachel's sister-in-law spoke to the press. It's the not telling her 
that she was at risk that upsets and angers us the most. She was an outgoing, lively, confident woman. If she'd known, in particular, if she'd have known the risk in regard to Auden, she would have done something. She worshipped that baby. Another issue with the response of the authorities to the threats Andrew represented dealt with the way the police and the health professionals made wholly incorrect and ill-judged presumptions about his life. Firstly, and informally, Rachel was viewed and almost encouraged to be Andrew's carer. With young Auden to look after, as well as her responsibilities to her mother, she was in no position or had no desire to give him the attention he so clearly needed, particularly as she was trying to build a new life independent of him. Secondly, and most worryingly, all the agencies operated under the outdated assumption that Auden represented a protective factor in Andrew's life, that his relationship with his son was having an untrammeled positive effect. This was only true in as far as when Andrew still felt there was a chance that he and Rachel and Auden could resume a family life together, all would be fine. In that scenario, he had hope, but it was an unrealistic hope. Rachel had moved on. She'd worked harder than anyone could have expected her to, to build a bond between father and son. But she never had any intention of returning to Andrew. And the second that became clear to him, the rekindling of a teenage romance with Robert, and her announcement that they were going to have a baby together, then his world was ripped in two. Affection was replaced with anger. Hope with hate. car and I'm about a couple of minutes drive from the play park that we were at in the in the last episode and I'm probably 20 meters or so from the house where Rachel and Auden lost their lives Um, I don't live a million miles from here and it's somewhere that I am quite familiar with and as I look at the house it's a home that I recognise it's made of a similar kind of grit stone with a slate roof as the cottage that I live in. Um, it's slightly different proportioned. It's on, it's narrow and it's, but it's, it's on three floors, but, and it's, I think, almost identical to cottages that are on my road and that, that my neighbors live in. There's a little stone porch with a small window to the side. And it opens through the porch and into the the lounge or 
what's probably a parlour with a little stone fire and with a small dining room to the side and then out the back to a kitchen. Looking at the plans of the house, I know that the the stairs to the upper levels comes up through the lounge and and knowing the scale that the house is on I can I know that the lounge area is it's not huge it's it's kind of got a cottage intimacy to it you'd probably fit a small sofa and maybe an armchair a, a coffee table and a and maybe a bookcase and with the fire there's probably only a couple of square meters of floor that that are free and, and open. Rachel and Lorden were completely cut off from the outside world. The keys to the front and back door which were locked were found in Andrew's pocket and so was Rachel's mobile phone so they were entirely isolated and, and trapped in here. And as the atmosphere and the mood turned darker and Andrew became more aggressive and violent, the room would have felt even smaller. And while there was no chance of a physical escape, there was no space to hide, really nowhere to run. The neighbour that heard noises and screams coming from the house spoke of how she saw Rachel at the window and then disappear from the window and as I say knowing the scale of the rooms when the police officer forced entry into the house that there in front of him were the bodies of two adults and a and the tiny tiny body of Auden Holbrook really is a picture postcard place it's like an idyllic little English country village it's on the side of a slope and Rachel's house is just off the main road on a little back walk but raised up and from the probably the top couple of floors she'd have been able to see out down into the valley and out across miles and miles of countryside there's the hills and the river and just in front of Rachel's front door there's a beautiful long garden and beyond the little back path that, that her road is there's the back of a, a little art gallery and we know how much Rachel loved her art just I don't know five meters ten meters from the front gate to the right 
is the Spotted Cow pub, which is the... Well, now it's become a real community hub. A few years ago, the brewery that owned it wanted to sell it off and it ended up as housing. And like so many villages before it and inevitably in the future, when those assets go, when the local pub goes, it never comes back. But the local residents rallied round and bought the pub for the village as an asset for the village. And it's thriving. The Spotted Cow pub is now the real centre of village life. Um, space at the back. They've created a cafe, and village shop and post office. And the pub's called the Spotted Cow and the, the cafe and post office is called the Spotted Calf. And you get a genuine sense that this is a place where, and I don't know how long Rachel would have stayed here with Auden, but with a Robert's unborn child growing inside her, you can imagine that this is the kind of place where they could have happily built a new and fulfilling and charmed life as a new family. If you go to the left, as opposed to the right, a four or five minute walk down, there's a small primary school. And with the village school and the village community hub and a little art gallery and the beautiful countryside around, Holbrook could have been a place where Rachel and Robert, Auden and the next newest member of the tribe could have built a wonderful life together and enjoyed a great future. All too late, the police and health professionals realised their mistake, not leaving enough opportunity to alter course and provide the protection Rachel and Auden deserved. As well as highlighting the lack of coordination between the police and the health authorities, criticism was made of what appeared to be an absolute lack of continuity of care for Andrew. How, in the absence of a joined-up approach, no single individual or agency took any ownership of his care or the way in which he was growing more and more unstable. At the inquest in 2013 which followed the completion and publication of all the state mandated reviews, Coroner Dr Robert Hunter made four key recommendations. 1. That the government should consider extending police powers of detention in relation to suspects involved in offences of violence or sexual nature who break their bail conditions. In Andrew's case, he repeatedly ignored requests and orders to only seek contact with Rachel when relevant to maintaining his relationship with Auden. Outside of this, outside his relationship with his son, he was to have no contact with Rachel at all.
Recommendation number two. The implementation of a national training programme for all police officers around domestic violence and intimate partner homicide. Number three. The implementation of an improved sharing of information between police and mental health services. Just as in last week's episode, the murder of Tanya Moore, Derbyshire Constabulary had operated in a silo. There were no meaningful attempts to reach out to other agencies in order to gain a fuller understanding of Andrew's state of mind or the risk he posed to Rachel and Auden. Number four. The Derbyshire Police formulate a policy document and investigative framework for domestic violence cases and make it not only accessible to all officers, but also a requirement for all police officers. Thinking back to the murder of Tanya Moore, whereby calls were not logged and envelopes of evidence were left unopened. The fact that the work around Andrew was managed in notebooks of individual officers and not shared centrally. It's telling that this is something that needs to be explicitly addressed by the coroner. What it highlights is how little has changed in Derbyshire Police's handling of serious investigations into domestic violence between the murder of Tanya and the killings of Rachel and Auden. The promises made to Tanya's family that Derbyshire Police would do better by other families in light of learnings offered by her death was broken. Very little seemingly changed. Multi-agency working groups weren't established. Training was available, but poorly and sparsely delivered. Individual incidents were reviewed in isolation, as opposed to being seen as part of a wider pattern of behaviour. In the end, though, after hundreds of pages of reviews and reports, a six-week inquest and endless media speculation, the coroner, Dr Robert Hunter, confirmed the jury decision. Confirmation of what was known already. That Andrew had murdered Rachel and Auden before turning the knife on himself. On the steps of the court, Robert Barlow, Rachel's partner, spoke eloquently and from the heart, describing her as so kind, so unconditional with her love. That's what we all lost, not just me, but her family, her friends, everybody. Addressing his own future, Robert spoke of how he'd proudly carry love in my heart and a smile on my face and live my life to the fullest as Rachel, Auden and her unborn child would have done. The family, represented by Rachel's brother and sister-in-law, Hayden and Melody Slack, highlighted the conclusions drawn by the inquest, saying that the jury's findings that the police failings contributed to the deaths of Rachel and Auden and the various reports to be made to the coroner will ensure that lessons are learned that could protect the lives of other women and children threatened by domestic violence. The term domestic violence was one which, initially, they had rejected as relevant to the death of Rachel and Auden. For them, the issue was the man suffering mental illness who, due to that illness, had committed the most wicked of crimes before taking his own life. A short while after the killings, though, they were approached by the domestic violence charity Refuge, who asked, as a family, if they needed any support. 
For those who don't know Refuge, they're the largest specialist domestic abuse charity in the UK. On any given day, their services support thousands of survivors of domestic abuse, helping them to overcome the physical, emotional, financial and logistical impacts of abuse and rebuild their lives free from fear. Opening the world's first hostel for victims of domestic abuse in London in 1971, Today, through a network of 44 safe residential spaces, they help 6,000 women a year escape domestic violence. Through conversations with Refuge, Rachel's family began to look at Rachel and Andrew's relationship and interactions in an altogether different way. Andrew was emotionally manipulative towards Rachel. He preyed on a good nature and caring attitude exploiting them in order to impose himself on her life. Though it's not known whether he'd been physically violent towards Rachel prior to taking her and Alden's lives, her brother and sister-in-law recalled Rachel expressing a fear sometimes for her safety around him, interpreting it at the time as being the result of his low mood. The question had to be asked to what extent Andrew's illness could realistically be used as an excuse for what had happened. It's only in the last decade or so that work has begun in any meaningful way to challenge the idea that violence and mental illness go hand in hand. Partly as a result of stigma subsiding a little when it comes to mental illness, studies both in the UK and abroad have analysed the risk of violence at the hands of someone suffering from depression schizophrenia etc and what that represents the results are surprising the assumption that men suffering from schizophrenia were a clear and present danger to society has proved to be utterly unfounded a partner or family member or member of the public is actually less likely to be hurt by someone with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and autism than they are by a member of the general population For depression and anxiety, where symptoms such as irritability and a fatalistic sense of doom are common, there's a slightly increased risk against the general population, but the margin is small, ranging between 5 and 7% over the number of studies. In this context, the learning enforces a somewhat revolutionary view of those who commit violence, particularly intimate partner violence, do so not because of their mental illness, but alongside it. Without wanting to moralise, it's not the mind that's bad, but the person. There are suggestions that there was some premeditation in Andrew's attack on Rachel and Arden. The ominous words to his GP at the consultation the day of the murders, that it was going to be one of the most important days of your career, certainly gave weight to this suggestion, alongside the actual threat of murder that was made in the park and was subsequently reported to the police. Author Lucy Bancroft articulates it perfectly. An abusive partner's value system is unhealthy, not their psychology. Working with the charity Refuge, Rachel's family have gone on to be tireless campaigners on the subject of intimate partner violence. They've been involved in driving through meaningful change within Derbyshire Police overseeing a training programme for all officers around domestic violence 
as well as helping to bring around better multi-organisational working. It's now practice, for example, for the force to inform the local health trusts of any incident of domestic violence, and there's been some progress developed whereby worries and concerns from health professionals are more quickly evaluated and acted upon by the police. Nationally, Rachel's sister-in-law in particular is a respected and compelling voice in the conversation around intimate partner violence. In 2013, she secured a House of Commons debate on Rachel and Lorden's deaths in an attempt to bring about a full judge-led public inquiry into their case. The point being for the state to thoroughly review what at the inquest the coroner described as a national epidemic of domestic violence. While the public inquiry never materialised, His Majesty's Inspector of Constabularies did commission an independent report into the police and of issues around domestic violence, and in 2021, new landmark legislation, the Domestic Violence Act, was passed, implementing some of the recommendations that came from Rachel and Norden's inquest, as well as others on which Melody would go on to champion. In March each year, to mark International Women's Day, the Labour MP Jess Phillips reads a list in the House of Commons of women who have died at the hands of men in the previous 12 months. The list, which is compiled by the Femicide Centres, an organisation which I've mentioned in a previous episode, in 2023 ran to 108 names. If you go to YouTube, you can find the video there. It's a moving, heartfelt and shocking tribute to the victims. In the video, with the list completed, Jess Phillips gives way to Lillian Greenwood MP, the Member of Parliament for Nottingham South. Greenwood highlights one of the names on the list, that of a constituent, Fatamata Hydra. Fatamata and her two children were burnt to death in their home on the 20th of November 2022. Just this week, the neighbour of the family, Jamie Barlow, is standing trial for murder in Nottingham. As Greenwood returns to a seat, the camera pulls back to offer a wide shot of the chamber. Plush green leather benches stretching the entire length of the room on both sides of the house. At a push, Able to seat a full complement of 650 members of the House, less than 30 are in attendance to hear the list being read. Less than 30 are able to feel the weight of those names. Is it really any wonder then, if our legislators seem so unwilling to listen to the names, that the number each year remains so stubbornly high?
as I got in the car and I was driving away from Holbrook, um, I remembered a photograph that I'd seen, and it's quite prevalent in the in the media around the coverage of Rachel and Auden's killings, and it's of Rachel holding baby Auden in her arms and stood just in front of the cottage uh, and Rachel's smiling and looking at him and he's held up like almost as though he's perched on her hip and Auden's looking out just past the camera with his hand raised in the air um, and there is that moment when you see a photograph of something and then you connect that photograph to an actual real place um, it's often like when you're you could be watching a program on TV at home and then all of a sudden you recognize something in the background and you go hang on I know that place I know the location of that where that TV programme's been filmed and you get brought straight back to that place immediately and the memories and feelings of the place and then the programme that you're watching change. And I think that's one of the benefits really of visiting the locations I mean, it's really one of the reasons that I wanted to do the podcast in the way that I am, is that these are cases that have taken place relatively close to me. So I can, it not only helps with the research that I do, because I can go and look at primary sources and find people to talk to and then visit the locations. But I also think that it helps that it gives me a, a more meaningful connection to the lives and the stories of the people involved. And part of doing that is how I'm able to visit, when I can, the graves of the victims of the crimes. And that's where I'm heading now. I'm heading down to the cemetery in Ripley, which is not far from where, from Holbrook, about a, I don't know, it's probably about a 15 minute drive. Um, and I'm just pulling up outside now and um, you can come and join me and we'll, we'll go in together. So I'm just, I've just come through the entrance to the cemetery now and there's a, a gatehouse to the right hand side and it's a two storey weathered red brick building with, it seems to be all closed. I think gone are the days when there were little armies of gardeners who would work on keeping graveyards in pristine condition as a full-time job and I think now it's just 
little teams that drive around from cemetery to cemetery and keep them as tidy as they can. It's unlike a lot of the graveyards we've been to in that normally they're quite open spaces and connected to a church and as, as far as I can see there isn't a church here and as you come in through the main entrance there's the older gravestones which date back to the 1800s and they're more overgrown there's been as happens they've fallen into a bit of disrepair but the one flower that seems to have kind of grown through all of the brambles are bluebells which is in a kind of rewilding ravaged way rather pretty Rachel and Auden aren't buried here um, as far as as far as I know they were cremated but in the memorial garden which sits in the middle of the cemetery there's a large circular grass plot which is landscaped with benches and some plantings and around the edges of there there's the memorial stones now I have been here before um, there's a little grey squirrel just scampering around and uh, so I know exactly where I'm heading and just as you come off the main path to the left there's a there's one memorial stone that stands out I would say more than the rest really it's got a huge beautiful display of silk roses um, and there are some other flowers there but I think I've explained I'm not really an expert on botany and flora and fauna so I couldn't really tell you what they are but it's a family stone and on it marks in memory of George Slack who died in 1992 who was Rachel's dad who she cared for when she was young and then beneath that it marks the 10th of June 2020 and Jean, Jean Slack who was Rachel's mum who in a lot of ways she came back from Spain to care for and on the other side there's two names Rachel Claire Slack, age 38, and Auden George Slack, taking the name of her dad as Auden's middle name. He was 23 months old when he died. And I've just brought a little bunch of flowers. I'll just lay them down there. There, um, some bright pink roses. Rachel's brother and sister-in-law, as I said earlier, have done a huge amount of work to 
not only keep Rachel's and Auden's memory alive, but also to campaign on the issue of domestic violence and violence against women. And one of the things that I've noticed they've done is they have a day where friends of Rachel wear pink and it's a vibrant red pink and it mirrors apparently her favourite colour of lipstick so I thought the flowers I bring should probably reflect that. In an interview Molly Slack, Rachel's sister-in-law talked about Rachel's favourite song or one of her favourite songs and I think it says a lot about her character that when Molly was recalling a song Rachel liked it was also matched by a memory of her dancing energetically because I think of all the descriptions that I've read or seen or heard of of Rachel it was a one of energy and excitement and enthusiasm and the song in question is Constant Craving by Katie Lang. Um, if you don't know it, I'll put a link in the show on the notes, wherever you get your podcast. But the lyrics, um, well, I'll just read the lyrics of a couple of the verses. Even through the darkest phase, be it thick or thin, always someone marches brave here beneath my skin. Maybe a great magnet pulls all souls towards the truth, or maybe it's life itself feeds wisdom to its youth. And I think those lyrics speak of a strength and a desire that even in difficult times Rachel was able to demonstrate and embody she tried far and beyond anyone would have expected not only to care for Andrew but also to give Auden a connection with his dad I don't think anyone can doubt Rachel's commitment to not only the care and support of Andrew but also a commitment to her own beliefs that she saw good and the opportunity to change in everyone and despite carrying that burden heavily herself when she reached out for support from the authorities, the police, the mental health services, the primary care, it seemed the more effort she put in, the harder she worked, the more sacrifices she made, the further away that help was. And I think the determination that she showed 
and the strength that she showed and the love that she showed for Auden because ultimately it was all about him as he grew older having a relationship with his dad and that even through the darkest phase be it thick or thin she was the one that was going to march brave and that was something that was beneath the skin something deep down There was part of her soul and her being that was part of her soul and her character and while her death and Auden's death are a tragedy she lived her life to the full and it's just a crying shame that both her and Auden and what would have been her next little child didn't have the chance to continue that into the future.